Hi, everyone. It's Melinda Garvey with the See It To Be It podcast. This week, we have another great interview with an incredible role model. Stay tuned. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of the See It To Be It podcast. I am your host, Melinda Garvey. Excited to be bringing you yet another incredible female role model. That's someone that I have known for a very long time here in Austin, Texas, and you know, watched as she grew her organization, launched and grew it. And I'm really excited for her to be able to tell you her story and what she's doing today. So please welcome Rebecca Powers, who is an author, speaker, and social entrepreneur. Hey, Melinda. It's a privilege and it's great to catch up. Thanks for having me. Yes, absolutely. Well, first thing I always love to do is to go way back. Tell us, what was your big dream? What did you think you'd be doing when you grew up? You know, I can't say I knew that when I was very young. What I knew is I was going to go to college. My mother didn't go. My father did. But as far as I could see was that I was going to get good grades and be a good student. And my goal was to be able to go to a college I wanted to go to. And so that kind of drove what I did. And then when I got to college, I was certain then that I was going to be a physician because I was really good at science and math in high school. And then I took freshman biology and got the first C of my life. And it was really a flunk out course. It was for all those young freshmen who thought they were going to be doctors (laughs) and said, oh, no, no, no. And switched to business, which is really where I needed to be. So interesting. Hmm. So you started out on that STEM path and then geared off and then you went into, you were in sales at IBM, right? Mm-hmm. When I graduated from college in the mid 70s, I went to work for IBM as a sales rep, was the first female in my branch office that stayed more than a year and a half. They had no expectation that I would be successful because women hadn't been. And I was right out of school. And I laugh. The reason I got my job had nothing to do with my credentials. But when I walked in to have my interview with the gentleman who would eventually be my manager, at those days they could shut the door. But as he was shutting the door for the interview, he said, may I call you Becky? And I just smiled because my whole life I was called Rebecca. I said, well, I prefer to be called Rebecca. Didn't tell him he couldn't. And he said, I didn't hear a single word you said after that. I learned this two years later. He said, any girl who had the guts to tell me that her name was Rebecca and not Becky could clearly handle objections from a customer. And I'm like, are you kidding me? So you never know. Yeah. And it's funny, but you're like, seriously? People actually thought that, oh my gosh, a girl can tell me what her name is. I mean, oh my goodness. Well, of course, and look at IBM now, you know, they have a female CEO. And of course, our own Austinite, Carla Sublett, is now the CMO, the chief marketing officer. So excited for her of IBM. Yes. You know, that was back in the 70s and I was right out of college, but I stayed 14 years. So they didn't get rid of me and it was a great career. I loved it. I learned a lot. So. Very cool. You launched an incredible organization that you launched here in Austin, Texas, and has done so much good for the community. So I'd love for you to tell our listeners not only about the organization, but really about its inception, because I think it's a very powerful story of someone who you kind of back into it, if you will. It wasn't an expectation. You weren't like, oh, I'm going to start this organization. This is my big dream. I've always planned on doing this. So tell us that story. It's very powerful. 
Yes, I happened to read a magazine article in People on a flight back from Sacramento to Austin late at night, having seen my brother. I knew I had seen him for the last time. He was dying of cancer. And I was angry at God. I was angry at my family. We had all gathered and, you know, sibling rivalries popped up. <laughs> I felt like it was never about Peter. But I remember getting home and reading this article about a woman in Cincinnati who had gathered 122 other women to each contribute $1,000. They had put all of that together and given $123,000 to a dental clinic for the homeless in underserved part of Cincinnati. And two things hit me that moment. Oh my gosh, I didn't know I could have a voice for $1,000. I don't know if there's any homeless people in Austin. At that point, they were not visible. And I don't live in a part of Austin where they are. And I'm like, I've got to be able to find 100 women who have $1,000. I don't know 100 women in Austin. We had not lived here all that long but I'm going to go find them. And when I do, we will figure out a nonprofit to give it to and it will help heal the hole in my heart and then I will move on with my life. So it was just at that moment, I was going to do it once and had never given a penny to my community because I thought you had to have tens and hundreds of thousands of dollars. I didn't know a thousand dollars could get me in the game. And so I had contributed to our place of worship in my kids' PTAs, communities I knew. So I decided, by gosh, you know, back in my IBM career, I had to figure out how I was going to sell my quota every year. And, you know, I had to write a plan. And I just started asking everybody I knew. Who's the first person who you talked to about this idea? Actually, I talked to my husband and he was mildly supportive. And he finally said, Reb, if you don't try this, you will never know. And you will always wonder if you could do it. Then I was in a neighborhood Bible study at the time. And two days after I got back from that trip, it was the Bible study day. And my friends knew the issues I was facing. And they're like, well, how did it go? I'm like, well, that's one story you aren't going to believe what I'm going to do. And two of the women in that group came up to me afterwards and I was shocked. And they just said, you know what? I want to give you a thousand dollars. I want to invest. And I think I want to help you build it. And I thought, you know, the power of what I call evangelizing. I so believed in this model that I just knew I needed to share it till the right people showed up. And so if nothing else, that gave me a ton of confidence to keep mm -hmm. going. And I'm really the founder because I read the magazine article first. Like it wasn't my idea, right? I just copied it. So we laugh about that. But, you know, we did it the first year. We got 126 members because 124 was quota because the other organization had 123. So we had a lot of fun with that. That's that sales girl coming out right there, that competitiveness. <laughs> And we ended up with 126 women and none of us knew nonprofits in town. We didn't know any because none of us had been philanthropists or had given back. But our application process was such, and there were enough email networks out there that the nonprofits all found out. That's how we learned who they were. We had the application, it went to them, and then we learned what the needs in the community were and who the nonprofits were just by them applying. So it worked. And then we decided, by gosh, Let's get 500 women in five years. Then we will establish ourselves as a respected funder. And thank goodness we did it. Amazing. I want to kind of point out two powerful things that you said. One of them is just having those first two women come up and say, I'm in. 
I mean, this is something I've known anecdotally for a really long time because of the work that I do, that when women support women, it is exponential. Of course, now there is actual research. You know, the University of Notre Dame did research that proves that when women have a strong network of other women supporting them, that's what really drives that success. And they even found that if a woman has a mixed group of men and women, that it's not as successful. She's not. I mean, the women supporting women is so incredibly powerful. So Melinda, here's what I've come to learn over the years. We've put over $7 million to work in Austin for the underserved, and that is awesome. But you know what? To me, that is not the significance of Impact Austin. The significance lies in the transformation of each woman who is a part of this because their giving explodes, not just to us, but to organizations they learn about. And the way that our members support each other, mutual aid, if you want to call it, that's the buzzword right now. But women are helping women find jobs because of the connections that they make within Impact Austin. They help each other. Not always did girls used to be helpful. You know, you didn't ever want someone to do better than you, but it's not like that now. And so to see some relationships develop that would never had paths not crossed, experienced women mentoring younger women on issues that aren't even a part of what we do, that to me is a lot of the value that Impact Austin brings to the community. Well, and I also think that, you know, it was important what you said about, you know, women who, you know, they maybe had given to the PTA, to your point, or their church, but hadn't really been donors, you know, and it is sometimes intimidating. I mean, you go to some of these events here in Austin, and if you can't paddles up for $10,000, you kind of feel like you need to crawl under the table sometimes. At our very first annual meeting, it really made me kind of sad. So we had it in person in Austin. Isn't it funny that I say that now during the pandemic? But a woman emailed me and said, you know, I don't really have fancy clothes, so I'm not really sure I'll be comfortable coming to the meeting. I'm like, if you brush your teeth, if you tuck your shirt in, you are welcome. And every woman has a voice. You know, we each have one vote. And that was refreshing to me, you know, and she was surprised because she thinks fancier and I'm not comfortable. And so we did have a lot of fun with that. I love that it's non-hierarchical. I've sat on committees before. Well, you know, and you're sitting with a big donor and it's that awkward feeling that everybody's not on the same playing field and that big donor does have a stronger voice. And I'm not even saying that that's necessarily the wrong thing. It just is how it is. When you talk about that, I think about our grant review committees where every woman put in the same amount of money. So around that table, when you're in jeans and a t-shirt and you're all discussing grant applications, nobody knows who has deep pockets, who doesn't. They've all come, all different uh, careers, stay-at-home moms. And that's kind of fun because voices are seen as equal. So it's been fun. Very interesting. Yes. So let's just talk about your transition. I mean, you ran the organization as its executive director for how many years? 10 years. You know, I know because I knew you during that time and know how much work it was managing it and organizing it. So let's talk about the transition because I think this is something that we don't always get to talk on the show about, but you have phased out. You know, you've gone through that letting go stage. So I'd love for you just to talk a little bit about that, that process of letting go, the challenges maybe you had to overcome, Mm -hmm. figuring out how to let go and what helped you overcome that and then sort of what that relationship looks like now. 
that was the hardest time of my Impact Austin experience. I still, as the founder, get called in when I can be helpful, but I have no day-to-day responsibilities. I don't get a vote. I don't have a voice, which is what I want. But letting go, I knew it in my head. And I promised myself the day I woke up and the pain was more than the joy was the day it was time for me to move on because I'm a builder. Kudos to you, Melinda. The running of the company, making the systems better and stronger, not my jam, and I'm not really good at it. I like the challenge of the unknown and what's going to happen today. So I knew intellectually that it was time to leave, but it took my heart three or four years before it knew it was time. And how that played out It wasn't always pretty in that I will say that it took us a few tries to get the right leader and founder syndrome is alive and well, and we were absolutely certain it would not impact us. I knew that nobody could have the passion I have as the founder, and I knew that, but yet so afraid that things weren't going to go well or the way that I was certain they should. So I had to step away like totally and not be involved at all and not know anything that was going on so that Impact Austin could, I'm going to say, find itself again. And it took several years. Our membership declined for a while, partly because I'll go out there and find the members. And I was committed to that every year. I knew we would do what we said. But if it's not something that's easy for others or natural for them to do, it had a natural slide. But then we're not doing what we say to the community we're going to be doing. And that's when I was like, oh, man, we're not holding up our end of the bargain. So after a few years, one of our chronologically young former board members came back into the organization and said, things aren't the same here. And she was invited to come back on the board. And it took two years, got us headed back in the right direction. I don't think the community felt it as much as those of us who had been around for a while. And I look back on the fact that we learned a lot. And now I mentor other organizations who are going through this, because a lot of them started at about the same time Impact Austin did. And I will say, legitimately, I never wanted this to be Rebecca's Impact Austin. This needed to be the communities. Saying that and making that happen were two different things. But what I love today is I'll get on a Zoom call or there's a meeting and I'm invited to attend. And the women are like, oh, you're Rebecca Powers. They don't know me. That's the biggest gift I could have given the organization as the founder, I believe, to not be even on the sidelines trying to get my way. Yes. But it was hard. Thank you for being so transparent about that, because I think that all founders, I'm not sure I actually know any that have mastered this. It is very, very Mm -hmm. difficult. Even if you manage to remove yourself or not have as much, it's still that thing in your heart. It's still very, very challenging to deal with. And I think it's an important part of entrepreneurship, thinking about the exit. You know, they always say, plan the exit first. I know what that looks like. Even if it evolves and changes, you should always be talking about it. And that's really what this means. It's not like, oh, who's going to buy my company for $50 million? What is this going to look like? You know, and how do I make sure it's sustainable? And, you know, I'll tell you what helped me is a fellow founder of a nonprofit in Austin 
She started it when I did, reading a magazine article like I did, same year, we're the same age. She and I had become very good friends and she planned her exit very well and created College Forward, a very successful nonprofit. But she took me to dinner one night and you know, it's a lonely place too, right? Other people aren't in my boat with me, but she took me to dinner one night and said, you need a glass of wine. And I'm going to tell you one thing, you cannot grab the next trapeze till you let go of the one you're holding on to. And until you let both hands go, Impact Austin will not move forward and you will not be able to get to what's next. And that visual was so powerful to me. And then, of course, she's like, now you can listen to me or not. But it so helped me put it in perspective when I was struggling. And I'm so grateful that I finally did let go. And the women, when I probably wasn't as well behaved as I should have been, stayed in the game because they believed so much in Impact Austin. And I'm grateful for that. And now I'm going to make you introduce me to the founder of College Forward so that she can coach me and mentor me. Because we're all going to be there, right? Exactly. Sounds like a very wise woman. Wise. Let's talk about that next trapeze because you did let go finally, right? And you were on to the next thing. You have written a book that's going to be coming out in May. And tell us about that book and sort of the impetus behind that. I started writing this book 10 years ago and I was chronicling my Impact Austin journey. And my goal was to put it on eight and a half by 11 typewritten sheets, put it in my hope chest and let my kids read it when they were older or let their, you know, and go, oh, that's what my mom was all about. And this past September, I met a woman on a webinar who talks about people writing books. And she and I had a one-on-one conversation after that webinar. And she goes, you know what? Get that book out, dust it off, and let's get this thing written because there is no reason if you have a story, which we all do, to make it small. This is a story that other people can learn from. And, you know, you have that, I don't want to say imposter syndrome, but it's like, oh, what if nobody reads it? What if it falls flat? So I did, and it's in typeset right now. It comes out on May 25th, and it's a memoir. And I had a fabulous editor. She said, you have not gone deep enough in your personal struggles with that organization. And I am going to challenge you to be as vulnerable as you can, because that's what people want to read. Like, this isn't just a happy skip to the rainbow story. I mean, you could make it that way. It's not interesting. What's interesting is what you've learned about yourself. It sells a ton or people like it. I feel like I have told my Impact Austin story and it's in writing and I'm giving all my proceeds back to Impact Austin to fuel our endowment because I so believe in it. And so that's a good feeling too, which gives me a reason then to say, will you please buy my book? (laughs) (laughs) That's right. (laughs) I see it as a, I am so grateful that I met this woman and so grateful too, I have to say for my husband who has let me have days away from home, you know, writing in a room and and crying and fussing because it won't come out. I can say I'm an author now. You know, when you said, what are you doing now? And was it what you always thought you would do? I never thought of this. I think I'm satisfied. I think that's what I would say. And my goal, my dream, my vision board, I'm standing in front of rooms of women, inspiring them 
to trust their cape like I did. Take a leap of faith. And I think your cape is really not what's on the outside. Your cape is your moxie, your spunk, your grit. What is it that helps you keep going? You can do this. And I would love to evangelize that message wherever I can. And I see that kind of in my future. Absolutely. And I truly believe that it can't be evangelized enough. I think that we constantly need that reminder. We need that inspiration. You know, life is hard and it gives you a lot of knocks. And if you can't immediately connect with that next piece of inspiration, something's going to say, no, no, I'm going to pull myself back up. I just think it's so important in all those ways. And you did mention, I want to make sure that people know that the name of the book is Trust Your Cape. Trust Your Cape, How Women Find Their power in giving back. And it'll be available on Amazon on May 25th. So that's a big day. An exciting day. Yes. Yeah. An exciting day. I have a greeting card. I have many of them and I send them to friends and it says, find your voice, use your voice, even when it shakes. And I think women, we just need to put on our big girl pants and find our voice. And when we do, we are unstoppable. And that I'm hoping is part of the message. You know, there was no rocket science involved in creating Impact Austin. And there wasn't anything that people wouldn't understand about the model. It was just a matter of putting one foot in front of the other and and getting the work done. And sometimes that's just what it takes. Even when you don't know what the next step is going to be or the fifth step, it appears and it lets you know. And Impact Austin is really an example of that. Absolutely. So what's something that you learned about yourself in writing the book? Was there anything that you sort of like didn't really want to put in the book? You were like, oh, but you knew it was there. Like, what what was that thing? Oh, you know, there were several. But the one thing that I did not give my, especially the founding board credit for, was that they could have the passion that I had so that I didn't trust that people would do the job, whatever their role was the best way, which then leads to my issue of control and my issue of not understanding that good leaders surround themselves with people smarter than they are. And I didn't have to have all the answers. I didn't have to be the smartest one in the room. I had to learn that the hard way. And my board helped me figure that out pretty quickly. You know, people had said, look, you run PTA. You can sell anybody anything. You're a leader. And I would go, oh, no, I'm not. And they go, yes, you are. This is way before Impact Austin. So you begin to think you are one. You're in that role and you are failing at times. Well, here's what I learned. Jim Collins, good to great. True leadership only exists if people follow you when they have the freedom not to. And that fueled me. Because nobody had to do this. Lots of us who've gone through those things, it's a a hell of a lot of pressure to feel like you have to be the smartest person in the room. I can really relate to that because I think I thought I had to, like, I thought that's what people expected. So even though I was scared, I didn't want to be, I'm like, oh, I know I'm not, but I thought that's what everybody else thought I should be. So you're trying so hard to do that and you're not getting it. It's a hard place to be. It's a lonely place to be. 
Well, and I think the piece, and you could relate to this, I was the one that regardless of what happened, I had to catch the balls if they were falling to the ground. There weren't others. So it could be at the last minute something didn't happen and I had to fix it, take care of it, do whatever. That rarely happened. But just the pressure of knowing the buck stopped with me made me hypervigilant in a way that wasn't always attractive. And I had to come clean about that in the book. The only person thrown under the bus in the book is the founder. (laughs) Oh boy. Okay. I think I'm never going to write a book. (laughs) You know what though? Here's what's cool. When I say it has a happy ending, you know, good things happened and life is good for everybody. And so that is the message. There are, you know, new chapters. And now I mentor women in other cities who are doing this. And so it's all good. You know, as we're kind of wrapping up here, is there one piece of advice that you sort of live by or you like to share that somebody gave you over the years that you would like to pass on, especially for women? So I do think, and I learned this with Impact Austin, I thought when it was time for change that I had to make huge 180 degree turns. I learned, thankfully, early on that small pivots create huge change. And if I would just do things a little bit differently and then a little bit differently, it was less painful. And rather than feeling stymied or frozen because I didn't know how to make the huge change all at once, small pivots add up. And the older I get, the more I see that. And to give myself grace, a small step at a time. So if anyone is interested in finding out more about Impact Austin, you can go to impactaustin.org and they are always accepting new members. And I know they have a wonderful new leader, Christina Grzynski, is fabulous. I'm here in Austin. And of course, May 25th, your book is coming out. Get on Amazon. Can you reserve it yet? No. You can't reserve it and it'll be available on the 25th. So I'm doing a big marketing push. That's what I'm working on now to to get people. And you can find me on Twitter at IA Founder and you can find me on Instagram at Trust Your Cape Book and that will keep you very well informed. Well, and it sounds like there might be some speaking opportunities in your future. So sounds like this is just a taste of all the fabulous messages that you have. So if anybody is looking for that, I know it would be a wonderful opportunity to have you. You know, the other thing I always say, if I do the right things, the right things happen. And I don't know where those opportunities will be, but they will come because I believe they will. And there is a message and I have a book. And I guess when you have a book, even though you'd say the same thing without one. <laughs> right. <laughs> you have to have a book. I know. Yeah, well, everything yeah, now. That's true. That, well, yeah. Now you have a book. Yeah. Well, Rebecca, thank you so much just for your vulnerability mm-hmm. and your candor and sharing with us today. I really appreciate it. I know your story so well, but there are always things that I don't know. And I'm so happy to always stay connected. So thank you for being thank on the show. Thank you, Melinda. It was a joy. Thanks for listening to the See It To Be It podcast. For more female empowerment, inspiration, and advice, subscribe to our free weekly newsletter featuring a new woman to watch each week. And check out over a thousand more featured women at onthedotwoman.com. Know someone we need to feature? Reach out at onthedotwoman on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook.